0: The following program is a podcast1.com production. Let's play. life, we have our plans, sometimes short-term plans, sometimes long-term plans, sometimes plans that take moments to make, other plans that take weeks to make, like when uh, I took my wife and my family to Africa on safari these plans were over a year in advance and there were so many details to transport an entire family it was about I guess six of us or seven including my son's wife to Africa for two weeks there was so many details so many elements and parts to the plan Um, the preparations were ridiculous there are plans like that And then there are, you know, the little ones like planning for next week's show. What am I going to talk about this week on Snyder Comments? What am I going to discuss? And I labor over it. Sometimes the subjects just come to me. Other times I really have to think about what I want to discuss because I want the show to be more than just typical and what people expect, which is probably the show's biggest problem. It's always my biggest problem is that I won't do what people expect me to do so, uh, so attendance and sales suffer <laughs> so I had my show planned for this week and then life happened Lemmy Kilmeister died Lemmy Kilmeister from Motorhead Lemmy Kilmeister my friend my mentor uh, my fairy godfather And that superseded everything. That stops everything. doesn't matter what I was going to talk about. That can wait. Because I need to talk about Lemmy. People need to talk about Lemmy. People are talking about Lemmy. You know, I'm trying to... Decide, you know, what I'm going to do and and how to talk and tell stories. And so what I am going to do is read a couple of chapters from my book, Shut Up and Give Me the Mic, that Lemmy has a significant presence in. Because Lemmy was a significant presence in my and Twisted Sister's career. If Lemmy had not stepped in when he did... I honestly believe success would have eluded us. <clears throat> and uh, I'll, I'll get into that, of course, in a little bit um, when I read those chapters. But if Lemmy had not intervened, if Lemmy had not been the man, the person he was, uh, my whole, my life path would have been entirely different. So you might say, I owe him because I would I honestly believe we would not have the success we ultimately had if not for Lemmy's constant championing of our band. And when Lemmy passed the because people know how important Lemmy was to me and to Twisted, the text and the emails and the phone calls just started piling in people sending their sympathies to me like a family member at the loss and of course in this day and age you immediately go to social media because there you can find like-minded individuals and there you can share your feelings immediately on a grand scale and again on twitter the outpouring about lemmy and this is this is with me uh, mentioned you know at the snyder um, was amazing, but they were including me in the outpouring because my followers a great many of them know of the relationship we have had and um and you know and and I <clears throat> Did a lot of tweeting. Actually, I had a lot to say, a lot to share, a lot to—I don't want to say offer—but you know, I wanted in 140 characters or less uh, express the greatness of this man, and so it took a lot of tweets, and then people were sharing pictures with me of, of me and Lemmy together which I shared and 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 video of me and Lemmy and which I shared and you know, so there was a lot of that going on. And I was amazed at the outpouring. But when I went and searched Lemmy. Well what I didn't really search Lemmy, I saw that he was trending. Top of the trend list hashtag Lemmy and with hundreds of thousands of tweets and I started scanning the other tweets uh and I I shouldn't have been surprised, but look you know, when you meet a great person, when you meet a kind person, a nice person, a a special person, part of their Unique ability. It's not unique, but with the genuineness that people like this exude comes a feeling like you are the only one. You're the one, the only one. And it's not a lie on the part of the person who is being this genuine. It is part of of the quality of who they are that they can give you that kind of attention and make you feel like you matter. But when I started looking out further beyond my Twitter handle and saw all of the rock stars and all of the people coming forth and speaking about Lemmy, it was, I wasn't surprised this guy wasn't just great to me and my band. He was just a great guy. And when you see Ozzy and Black Sabbath and, 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 and Nugent and Aerosmith and Foo Fighters and, and then artists that you don't even expect what, uh, who was uh, who was the uh, one of the artists that blew me away? It was it was one of the country singers, one of the winners of Celebrity, uh, not Celebrity Apprentice, of um, of uh, America's Got, no, not America's Got Talent, American Idol. One of the winners of American Got Idol, um, American Got Idol. That's great. A phone call is coming in while I'm trying to talk to you guys. Uh, the winners of American, uh, not Kelly Clarkson. Ah, oh, man, it doesn't matter who it was, but a person like Kelly Clarkson. sending her sympathies and talking about what Motorhead meant to her, to her. The realization of how far-reaching this gruff, nasty, and I say that in the best way that he would say nasty, badass, pirate, Cigarette smoking, Jack Daniels drinking, speed doing, speed demon. Bass player in one of the, ne- what was the, t- he said, when this, my band moves, in. if my band moves in next door to you, your lawn is going to die. That was his description of Motorhead. And he wasn't far from wrong. A band that brutal, that intense, that raw and true to what rock is, the promise of what rock could be. To see the and I'm doing a quotation about the legit stars that he touched and to see all the pictures, everybody taking pictures with Lemmy, wanting to be in pictures with Lemmy, admiring Lemmy, loving Lemmy. So many young bands, like my band, Twisted Sister, when we were a young band, talking about the kindness he showed, the positivity, Ricky Rocket from Poison, talking about how Lemmy, you know, and Poison was a band that, like Twisted in its own way, got, got slandered by so many other bands as not being legit, but Lemmy was fearless, he didn't care what other people think, he wasn't there to impress you. He wasn't there to say what was popular, to say what people wanted him to say or to do what people wanted him to do. He spoke his mind all the time. And if he liked something, he could care less if other people didn't. And in Ricky Rocket's tweet, he talked about what it meant to have Lemmy tell him he thought the band was great. And how with Lemmy smiling down upon them, he just didn't give a shit about what other people thought. Because Lemmy was a king of cool. Lemmy was the real deal. Lemmy Lemmy uh, look, it it happened with Twisted Sister too. And you'll hear about that when I read a couple of chapters for you from my book. You know, he didn't care what other people thought. If it spoke to him, if he liked it. He embraced it. He championed it. Even if others were shaking their heads and questioning. And I got to say, I think I got that from not, if I didn't get it from him, it certainly encouraged it in me to be that kind of person, to be fearless. To not give a shit what other people think. To do what you want to do when you want to do it, how you want to do it. To be your own person. You know, I say when somebody dies, the greatest honor you can pay them is to take something you admired in them and incorporate it into your own life, your own personality, to make it a part of you. That is how you remember people. That's how you honor them. And I have already taken that in before this. But I will continue to carry that torch, to be the person who's fearless in speaking his mind. And in not caring what other people think or what's cool or what's not cool or what's accepted or what's not accepted. That's the part of Lemmy that I'll take with me. So, this is kind of hard. Which is one of the reasons why I'm going to read a couple chapters from my book. And, you know, I, I tweeted a picture of me and Lemmy. And Lemmy happened to be holding my book. And some asshole tweeted... Yeah, way to go, D. You know, using a man's death to promote your book. Jesus, dude, seriously, this is not about promoting the book. <laughs> the book hasn't sold shit. <laughs> hey, if that if I thought that was going to help sell books, I would have done it a long time ago. No, the book's not available on uh, books on tape at this time. And I thought it would just make it a little easier for me. If I read a couple of chapters, one in fact that is it, literally dedicated to Lemmy, in recognition of his importance, if I read a couple of chapters and and shared some memories of Lemmy through these chapters, and the whole chapter's not about Lemmy, but you'll see his influence and his importance and who he was and what he was. So my book, Shut Up and Give Me the Mic, came out a few years ago, and I'm not going to do a commercial for Shut Up and Give Me the Mic. Um, Yes, it's still available, but it's... um, I wrote the book myself. It's my memoirs. So the words are all mine, every word. There was nobody, no ghost writer, and, you know, like most rock, rock and roll books. And, and it's not a slight on other writers because just because you can sing doesn't mean you can write. As just uh, the, the reverse is true, too. Just because you can write doesn't mean you can sing. They're separate talents. Not everybody has them. So, you know, in, for most people, I developed it uh, over the years but you know doing screenplays and things like that but you know uh, but at the same time it's not a slight on other people but it's important to me that you know that the words are mine so when i'm reading them i'm basically just reading aloud what i thought and what i said um the book is about my rise and fall, <laughs> and you know, uh, and, and the the drink, a kid having a dream and achieving his dream, and of course, all along the way, the the, pl- the people who helped. Well, there wasn't a lot of people who helped. Lemmy was an exception. Lemmy Kilmeister was one, a rare exception, helping out a band. We did it well, you'll hear. Okay, so here we go. So, chapter 22 is literally called Lemmy Killmeister, Fairy Godmother, it's dedicated to Lemmy. And in that picture that the guy slighted me for posting with me with Lemmy, and Lemmy's holding my book, it was just the most recent picture I had of me and Lemmy, and I had given him a copy because, for obvious reasons, because he was so important and so influential. And and because I had dedicated a chapter to him. And I wanted him to have it. And Lemmy was an avid reader. Man, loved history. Loved reading. So um, in the, I got my head in the... In the um, this is great. I got my head in the cone of silence. I've told you about the cone of silence. So I'm trying to hold my Kindle up so that i can read it while reading to you so here we go chapter 22 shut up and give me the mic let me kill meister fairy godmother In June of 1982, Twisted Sister played its farewell tri-state area show at the North Stage Theater in Glen Cove, Long Island. Fueled by the fire of knowing we were finally making good on our promise of heavy metal glory, and with our loyal fans giving us a hell of a send-off, we gave one of the greatest live performances of our careers. Three days later, we were on a jet to England. I reluctantly left my very pregnant Suzette. Six months into her term, my petite wife had been overstuffed by her mother and grandmother, parentheses, you're eating for two now, and looked, about to, and looked about to burst. There was never a question of if I should go. Suzette never uttered a word of negativity or protest. It was just understood. This is what we both have been working for for so long, and it was finally coming together. Besides, I would be back in August in plenty of time for the birth of our first child, who was due in September. Leaving A.J. Pirro temporarily behind to marry his first wife, Joanne, he joined us a few days later. After six and a half years of waiting, eight plus for J.J., we finally headed off to England to take a giant step in our musical careers. Twisted Sister was recording its first album. We were booked to, we were booked to record at Kitchenham Farm Studios in Ashburnham, England, where Def Leppard had just taken a year to record Pyromania and Paul McCartney had finished his latest record. This place was the real deal. Our agreement with Secret Records was that they would provide the studio, housing, and meals. The studio and hotel were in the English countryside, which was absolutely beautiful in July. Our hotel was this amazing old place originally built by William the Conqueror in the Middle Ages. We're talking the 11th century. In the States, we call things that are 75 or 100 years old antiques. In Europe, that's considered relatively new. We couldn't have been more blown away. The studio, on the other hand, was a different kind of surprise. Kitchenham Farm itself was pretty cool, but we weren't recording there. I can't remember if it was purely a budgetary thing or if it was thought to be more metal. That was probably our justification for the budget issues. But it was decided we would record our basic tracks and guitar overdubs in a local barn using a mobile recording unit. Amps and drums were set up, bales of hay were used as sound baffles, and the recording truck was parked right outside the emptied barn in the middle of a working farm. Things were going well until the first time we asked our engineer to play something back in the mobile unit. The condescending, arrogant asshole, that's how he reacted to us, refused to turn up the volume. Apparently, he had tinnitus or something like that and couldn't listen to playback loudly. And by loudly, I mean anything greater than normal speaking volume. Was he freaking kidding? We were a damn heavy metal band, for God's sakes. We were loud by definition. Needless to say, my reaction to this guy's condition didn't endear the band to him or the rest of the people working at the studio. Screaming at a guy with tinnitus tends to be counterproductive. Talk about your ugly Americans. As a recording environment, the barn did the trick. We were able to get some kind of sound out of the room, but the local residents seemed none too pleased with us. And by local residents, I mean farm animals. I remember being outside looking at a cow while Mark the animal Mendoza was getting ready to test his equipment. The minute he started playing his bass, blistering loud, of course, the cow started the cow started uncontrollably shitting. That poor bovine didn't know what hit her. Maybe it was commentary on Mark's playing? The songs we were recording for our first album were ones we had been playing in the clubs for years, so there was no wasted time writing, creating parts, or even discussing what we needed to do. It was pretty much just laying down what we did live, regardless Regardless, any recording process is long and pretty boring. Like movie and video making, the industry mantra is hurry up and wait. Now, I'm sure that partying bands have a lot more fun, adding friends and girls and booze and drugs when recording. That wasn't for me. I was on a mission, and I'd finally be giving keys to the kingdom. I already had a cassette full of song ideas for the next album, which I had worked on in the months before we left. On the seven-hour flight to England, I went through the ideas and selected the best 20 or so. Now, while the guys were in the barn getting sounds, recording tracks, or just fooling around, I sat alone in the band van, or in a spare room, or in my hotel room, whatever was available to me, developing those song ideas. When I wasn't actually working on the recording and mixing of our first record, I was writing lyrics and or further preparing the songs for our second, so they'd be ready for the band when the time came. This is how I worked for the first three albums. We didn't even have album one out and I was ready for number two. I was that sure and committed. Remember Tony Robbins' luck, is preparation meeting opportunity? I knew this instinctively. Nothing was going to stop me. With Mark Mendoza working by Pete Way's side, Mark was interested in the art of recording, and the engineers assigned to our record, Craig Thompson, Will Gosling, and Dave Boscombe, we made our way through track after track, pretty much live to tape, with the exception of vocals. Those were recorded at various available studios. Pete Way, though his rock and roll heart was definitely in the right place, wasn't much of a producer. His greatest value was the credibility he brought to a bunch of relatively unknown crazy angst. Fans and musicians loved Pete, and to have his seal of approval opened a lot of doors for us. Motorhead had recently gone through an ugly divorce with Fast Eddie Clark, the lead guitarist, leaving the former band members on terrible terms. As bad as the breakup had been, the media were making it ten times worse, pitting the band members against each other in the press. It was sad to see. Pete was good friends with all the Motorhead guys and put in a call to Fast Eddie asking him if he would play some lead guitar on one of our songs, Tear It Loose. Fast Eddie didn't have a clue who we were and didn't have to. His pal Pete asked, and that was good enough. The legendary Fast Eddie Clark arrived at the barn with a guitar in one hand and a bottle of Jack Daniels, old number seven in the other. It was only mid-afternoon, but Fast Eddie was ready to get his game on. The plan was for J.J. and Fast Eddie to exchange lead guitar licks with each other on the track. Even though J.J.'s hard partying days were behind him, he stood toe-to-toe with Fast Eddie Clark in that barn, trading guitar licks and hits on the bottle of Jack one for one. I don't know when I felt prouder of J.J. In the short time I got to hang with Fast Eddie, I shared with him my thoughts on how the press was manipulating the feud between him and Motorhead singer bass player Lemmy Kilmeister. I told him how his relationship with Motorhead was like a marriage. They had some amazing years together. And even though they didn't get along now, it, it couldn't change the time they shared and what they had achieved. What a pushy ass I was. Who was I to lecture him on anything? I would find out for myself in just a few short years how difficult it was to keep a positive attitude about your band members after you broke up. Did I mention I was an ass? The track turned out great, and Fast Eddie became a friend of the band's for life. We would see him again soon enough, but not before we met the remaining members of Motorhead in a way more intense environment. While we worked to finish our first album, the Rough Cuts EP was being ready for release in early August. It would contain two Eddie Kramer-produced tracks, Under the Blade and Leader of the Pack, and two self-produced songs from our, from our last demo, our longtime show opener, What You Don't Know Sure Can Hurt You and Shoot em Down. But before either of these records would hit the stores, Twisted Sister was offered an opportunity that would become one of the pivotal moments, if not the pivotal moment, of our career. Motorhead was returning to the U.K. after the worldwide Iron Fist tour and headlining a heavy metal festival at a football stadium in Wrexham, North Wales. Their manager, Doug Smith, had been helping our manager with Twisted Sister Logistics in the U.K. and offered us a slot on the bill. Not just any slot, but the special guest slot, third on an eight-band bill. Twisted Sister readily accepted our first chance to perform for a British audience after months of hype in the local rock press. Our guardian angel Pete Way couldn't come with us to the show, so he called one of his mates who was going to be there. Pete told him that we were a great bunch of guys and he should watch out for us. That mate, the original pirate of rock and roll, headliner Lemmy Kilmeister of Motorhead. When we arrived at the stadium, the true reality of what we were undertaking began to set in. On a bill filled with bands with records in the stores, Twisted Sister had none. Nobody in this country had even heard one of our songs or even seen us perform, for that matter. Add to that, makeup-wearing bands were not only non-existent, but completely unacceptable to English metal fans. Any band that showed any hint of glam had been brutalized by the notoriously hostile British metal fans. The Canadian metal band Anvil had been given the nickname Canville after they were bottled off the stage because lead singer guitarist lips wore fishnet sleevelets. The band Girl, first recording band of Phil Collins from Def Leppard and Phil Lewis of L.A. Guns, were pounded mercilessly at a festival for wearing a hint of makeup. Wait until they got a load of us. As we looked out at the gathering crowd of of metalheads in the stadium, things went from bad to worse. Motorhead fans were some of the nastiest and ugliest looking motherfuckers we'd ever seen. And the few female fans they had, well, let's just say you'd rather have sex with one of the guys. To top it all off, the second band on the bill, Budgie, canceled at the last minute, pushing us up to the number two slot right before Motorhead. Then we found out we'd be going on before sundown. Because of people's often negative reaction to Twisted Sister's appearance, I had written What You Don't Know Sure Can Hurt You to open our shows. The only song I've ever written to fit a stage lighting plot. The idea was for the band to be lit only in silhouette for the first third of it. This would give the audience a chance to hear us before they saw what we looked like. The song had always been effective and we get a strong reaction when the front lights finally came on revealing our unique appearance. The key to the success of the song was that the stage and the band would start out almost totally in the dark. Twisted Sister had never performed in the daylight, and we were terrified of what might happen with Motorhead's audience. The band gathered in our dressing room to discuss a plan of action. We've been warned about the potential reaction to how we looked, and we were freaking out. Our first UK performance might well be our last. I don't remember whose idea it was, but somebody suggested that we not wear our makeup and costumes for the first time in our career. This was met with a pretty enthusiastic response from most of the jittery band members. Not me. I told the band that I was as afraid of going on stage that day as as they were, but I had come this far looking the way I did to back down now. It had not been an easy road for us. I had been in a lot of scrapes and altercations because of our image. If I was going to take the costumes and makeup off for fear of a negative audience reaction, I would have done it a long time ago. While the band did wear their makeup and costumes that day, some of them wore the Twisted Sister denim vest over their stage clothes and sunglasses covering their eye makeup. Not me. As we stood in our dressing room, nervously debating what we were going to do, Lemmy Kilmeister passed our open door. I've always joked that Lemmy stopped and came in because he knew the smell of human excrement from us shitting in our pants, and it was wafting out into the hall. Whatever the reason, he did come in and made an unsolicited proposition that blew us all away. Lemmy offered to introduce the band. I'm sure the magnitude of this gesture is not being fully appreciated by most of you. Motorhead or the headliner. Traditionally the top dogs don't even make their presence known to the bands backstage, let alone audience, let alone let the audience see them before their own set. It kills the suspense. Fans wait ravenously all day for the heroes to finally come forth in that mind-blowing first moment of the concert, for the front man to walk out on stage without an introduction before his or her show is unheard of, let alone to help out an unknown band that the artist has no affiliation with. To this day, I'm still not sure why Lemmy showed us this kindness. It's probably just the way he is wired and one of the reasons he is so beloved. He may be a pirate, but he's a benevolent pirate. When it was finally time for our set, we solemnly walked the long stadium hallway leading to the stage heading to our doom. The end of our intro tape, ACDC's It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Rock and Roll, played, and the band walked out onto the stage. The instant the British fans saw us, they began to react hostily. Before we had played our first note, arms throughout the crowd were cocked to throw bottles, cans, and more at us. Then Lemmy Kilmeister walked on stage. The crowd was shocked to see him and froze mid-throw. Lemmy's voice is notoriously unintelligible to untrained, especially not British, ears, but his fans heard exactly what he said. These are some friends of mine from America. Give them a listen. That was all it took. A dozen hoarse words from a UK rock god and Twisted Sister was given some blessed breathing room to prove our worth. We launched into a blistering set of what we did best, but with one caveat. Over the years, I'd slowly been losing the more campy elements of my live performance. The more I discovered my inner badass and realized that pretty boys were two words that would never be used to describe me, the frankenfurter trappings of the early Twisted Sister years had gradually disappeared. On that day, during that performance, in front of that crowd, the last vestiges of camp went completely out the window, and I fully released my true inner monster, and I never looked back. The ovation from the Motorhead Stadium crowd was staggering. And when we finally left the stage, we knew the Demolition Squad had done it again. Ten minutes after after our set was over, we were sitting in our dressing room, cooling down, feeling good about what we had done, laughing and making a lot of noise. At first, I thought I heard thunder. Oh, shit, was it going to rain? But the thunder was rhythmic, and there were voices. Joe Gerber told everyone to quiet down, and it all became clear. Twisted, stop, stop, sister, stop, stop, twisted, stop, stop, sister, stop, stop, twisted, stop, stop, sister, stop, stop. We could hear the crowd still chanting for more. This was the greatest ovation of our career. What I'm about to tell you next is a violation of trust, but I won't mention the person's name, and I think 30 years is a statute of limitations on something like this. Someone from the Motorhead camp came to me and said they overheard Lemmy saying, This is the first time I've ever been afraid to go on after a band. I couldn't believe it. No way. This was Motorhead. Impossible. The door to our dressing room opened and in walked Lemmy. He came straight up to me and said, I introduced your band. Now you introduce mine. Holy shit. Me introduce Motorhead at their headline stadium show? And that's just what I did. I walked out onto the stage, and the crowd went absolutely mad. Twisted Sister had won over their little black heavy metal hearts. I introduced Motorhead, then went to the side of the stage and head to every song along with all the other fans. Halfway through their set, Lemmy turns, points to me, and says, This one's for him. It's called America. For me? The crowd cheered, and Motorhead roared into the song. A day that it started out as a nightmare had turned into an incredible dream. After six and a half years, five guys from the New York area, led by a rube from Long Island, had arrived. I'll always be grateful and have nothing but love for Lemmy Kilmeister. And the kindness he showed me in my band that day, if he had not done what he did, there could have been a very different outcome and our career might have ended before it began. I had to pause there for a minute to regroup. That was tough. And like I said, it wasn't just us. And I'm not surprised. Because great people aren't just great selectively. They're great all the time. I remember um, a fan told me, they once approached Lemmy for um and asked him to save her a cigarette, and Lemmy gave him the whole pack. It seemed like a of insignificant gesture, but that just was Lemmy generous to a fault. He loved his fans, his friends, bands, music, rock. He was the real deal. All right, I'm going to skip up to another chapter. Uh, Significant moment in twisted history. And it seems self-serving, you know, to read these things, I know. And I guess it is, because it's about me and about the band. But it's the only examples I have to show. Just know that this is the kind of guy he was. All right, skipping up to chapter 24, even though when I searched Lemmy, I put the search for Lemmy in, in my book, his name just pops up all over the place because he became such a supporter of my band and would just show up at show after show um, to introduce us to an audience, to, just to watch us. Uh, you know, as a fan, uh, wearing our t-shirts, um, you know, he would jam with us if we wanted to jam with us. He just, I remember remembering right now when I, I hadn't seen him in a while and I had a done a, a thing called the SMFs and I went to Sweden rocks. It was we playing twisted songs and that uh, was when I first started coming back and, uh, I was on stage performing, and I'm rocking out, and I look over, and I see somebody standing on the stage with a lampshade on their head, just on the side of the stage. Um, it was Lemmy, but but uh, besides, he was, you know, it was a little nuts, but um, he would just show up, just, you know, he it, it didn't have to, it wasn't like he had to show up to be recognized, or show up to be you know, idolize or show up to be brought out on stage. uh, He would just show up because he liked our band and he liked us and to show us support. That's, That's a real friend. That's a real fan. They don't have to have an excuse like, oh, I was invited to jam with the band or something like that. And, you know, I guess... Similarly, I, I, I've i been the same way when we've played with Motorhead. I would always like to watch their shows. And ultimately, Lemmy would always wind up dragging me out on stage. In recent years, it was to sing um, Killed by Death. He would bring me out there to sing Killed by Death. and uh, But that isn't why I would go to the stage. I would just go to watch a band just destroy. You know, the... the, the they were a force to be reckoned with. They were not, let me kill Meister." It, it, you know, it was, it was stripped down. It was bare bones. It was brutal. It was honest. And he was, wasn't competing on anybody else's terms, only on his own. I have a little side story about that. The first time he brought me on stage, and this is when Twisted or reunited, and reunited, he asked me to come up and sing Kill by Death with him. Um, I was up on stage, you know, and we're doing the song, and it comes to the guitar break. And I, you know, I, I, I got to do something during the guitar break. So what do singers do during guitar breaks? So they, they they jump around and they gesticulate. And um, I thought it'd be cool if I went and stood in front of Lemmy's bass amp and headbanged. Instant splitting, screaming headache. His bass amp these base amps they called killer murder 1 and murder 2 i believe the killer 1 and killer 2 i think it's murder 1 and murder 2 are so loud and so mid ragey they will hurt you all and and i i couldn't like like literally jump away, like, you know, you react when you get burned. That's what it was like. Stepping in front of his amp was like I got burned. But in order to not come off uncool, I had to keep my hand in the fire for at least a few seconds so people didn't think that I was, like, afraid or whatever. So I stood there, headbanging, trying to pretend like I wasn't literally in agony. And so I finally was able to make a move away from that damn nightmare of an amplifier. All right. Chapter 24, it's, uh, it's entitled, I Can't Believe They Threw a Shite. Now, some of you may know part of this story because it was featured in, um, uh, in the Behind the Music. As a matter of fact, you know, a 30-minute Behind the Music on Twisted Sister, five minutes was dedicated to this story, to just one part of this story. But they thought it was so funny, they just had to make it a feature. You know, I I quite honestly would have liked a little more information on the band and less on a funny story. But the, the title of this chapter is I Can't Believe They Threw a Shite. All right. Word of the knockout punch Twisted Sister delivered at the Wrexham show in late July quickly spread throughout the UK rock scene. While we were back in the U.S. enjoying life with our families, awaiting the release of Under the Blade, a call came into our management office. The Reading Festival wanted to add us to the bill. England's Reading Festival used to be the premier rock music festival in the U.K. It's still a major player, but now there are a bunch of other equally competitive festivals. Unlike Castle Donington, unlike Castle Donnington's Monster of, Monsters of Rock, all heavy metal, and not known at the download – what? Oh, there we go. All heavy metal and now known as the Download Festival. Sorry, people. Reading always mixed things up, having more than 30 bands playing different types of rock music at, three day, uh, at the three-day event. Now, Reading offers as many as 50 bands. We were stoked to be asked to perform at such a prestigious event. The lineup that year was the festival's heaviest yet, including Y&T, the Michael Shanker Group, and Iron Maiden. Our Rough Cuts EP had just been released, so this seemed like the perfect opportunity for us to make further inroads within the UK metal community, promote the EP, and build anticipation for our September album release. Leaving Suzette behind again, heavy with child, we jetted back to England for a weekend romp at Reading. We would be taking the stage in the early afternoon for a short set, but we made sure to stack the deck in our favor. Twisted Sister, were never ones to fight fair. A call was put into our friend and producer Pete Way inviting him to join us on our last song of the set, a cover of the Rolling Stones classic It's Only Rock and Roll but I like it. Twisted Sister have been closing shows with an anarchic... with an anarchic- I can't even say my own words that I wrote, with an anarchic rendition of the song for years, and it had always been a crowd pleaser. But why not bring out a bona fide English heavy metal legend to further legitimize us? Pete was currently in the studio rehearsing with Fastway, so he suggested bringing Fast Eddie Clark along to jam as well, even better. We arrived at Reading at just past noon, a few hours before our set, and the place was already up and rocking. On this third day of the event, more than 35,000 people were in attendance. Finally, a bigger crowd than we had ever played to on our own. The band and I made our way to the stage to get a better look. With a large camping area off to the right, the two stages were side by side, and a huge crowd was split between them. The people who wanted the best view of the band currently on would pack themselves in front of that stage. The people who were more interested in the band coming up next would wait impatiently in front of the second stage while it was being set up. This way, they could see the band currently on while securing a good spot for the next band. This alternating system allowed for no major break between bands. The band Terraplane was currently performing, opening the day, and they were getting quite a bit of stuff thrown at them. Apparently, the just waking reading crowd didn't like having their beauty sleep interrupted. On my way backstage to check out the dressing room, I ran into our new friend Lemmy Kilmeister, who was there for the weekend's festivities. I gave him the heads up that Fast Eddie Clark was going to be jamming with us, then shared with him the same little lecture I gave Fast Eddie when we were recording. You know, the one about how the press were manipulating the feud between them and their relationship was like a marriage. Did I mention I was an ass? I don't think I can say it enough. My first official realization something wasn't quite right was when Terraplane finished their set. The throwing of things didn't stop. Now the audience in front of each stage were pelting each other. When I inquired about the reason for this, I was told it was a band thing. The fans of the band about to go on and the fans of the band going on after them were going at each other. It seemed idiotic to me, but whatever. As we were getting ready for our set, the whole truth of the Reading Festival audience's bizarre actions became clear. They throw things at every band and each other. This violent behavior had become so epidemic and so many bands and fans have been hurt that promoters had banned all glass bottles and metal cans from the festival grounds. This shit was moronic and serious. It was finally time for our set. As we stood off to the side, waiting for the point in our intro tape when we walk out, stuff was being thrown at the empty stage. I guess they were warming up their arms because when we made our entrance, all hell broke loose. That we were performing in broad daylight turned out to be a blessing in disguise. At least we could see the deluge of projectiles being hurled at us. What's that line from the movie 300? Our arrows will block out the sun, then we shall fight in the shade. Well, we rocked in the shade. We were bombarded with anything and everything those assholes could throw. Glass bottles and metal cans being banned didn't slow them down one bit. They would throw plastic liter bottles filled with soda, water, or even urine at the stage. Some members of the ready audience even took the time to slowly, methodically fill the bottles with dirt or small rocks and then hurl them at the stage. It was insane. The truly terrible thing was that a lot of the stuff would never even make it to the stage and slam down at the backs and heads of the concert goers closest to the band. Some of the audience even wore helmets for protection in anticipation of this happening. I was livid. Under the heading of the coolest thing I've ever seen a record company executive do, our label president, Martin Hooker, caught a peach that was thrown on the fly, gave it a quick once-over, then ate it. Waste not, want not, I guess. As the band tore through Bad Boys of Rock and Roll, followed by "Shoot 'Em Down, I was getting angrier and angrier. It was so incredibly frustrating to be unable to do anything about what was happening, standing high above the crowd on a stage with a mode of space between us and the barricade. Our recording of "Shoot 'Em Down on the Under the Blade record ended with the sound of machine of a machine gun firing. While in the New Millennium a song about shooting people who mistreat you, albeit in metaphor, finishing with gun firing, would be considered insensitive and on PC, this was nineteen eighty two. No asshole had yet taken song lyrics that literally. At my request, Secret Records had rented a military grade Uzi filled with blanks for me to fire off dramatically at the end of Shoot 'em down. Like I said, Twisted Sister doesn't fight fair. When we got to the end of the song, I pulled out the Uzi. It was a damn good thing I didn't have live rounds in it, because I'm telling you, I would have used them on those fucking pieces of shit. I was out of my mind with rage. When the song finally ended, I had my first opportunity to tear into the audience, and I did. I have been warned about using profanity and told our band would be banned from all outdoor venues if I cursed. Though I was and still am a renowned user of expletives in concert, this was not a problem. Not being drunk or high, I have total control of the language I use, which has come in handy, and can fairly easily modify my speech while still getting my point across. Though there is nothing quite like like the F-bomb to communicate one's innermost feelings. I told the crowd that the people throwing things were a bunch of pussies who didn't have the balls to say or do something to my face. I told those same pieces of crap, I told them those same pieces of crap were hurting innocent people in front of the stage. Then I delivered my ultimatum. Ultimatum. I called out the entire audience. All 35,000 of them. I said if they were men and women enough, I would meet them all on the side of the stage after the show and fight every one of them one at a time. I didn't care how long it took, and I meant it. Suddenly, the audience stopped throwing things and began to laugh. Not at me, but at the audacity of this makeup and costume-wearing yank who was clearly out of his mind and not kidding. They've never heard or seen anything like it. The band then ripped it to Destroyer and the tide turned. The Reading audience started to rock. By the time we got to its only rock and roll, the crowd had been completely won over, but the best moment was yet to come. Toward the end of its only rock and roll, We have a breakdown where I get the audience to yell, I like it, after I sing, I know it's only rock and roll, but. Using various audience participation tricks I'd perfected over the years in the tri-state club scene, I would never fail to get the audience screaming their lungs out, and tonight I had an ace up my sleeve. (laughs) After a couple of okay tries, I introduced Pete Way and Fast Eddie Clark. The audience lit up. These guys were rock gods and totally unexpected by the crowd. The two deities plugged in their axes and joined the band for another go at getting the audience screaming. And scream they did. While I was talking to the crowd, getting them ready for the big finish, they suddenly inexplicably started to roar. I was confused. Being a professional crowd river upper, I was an expert in cause and effect. I say something, reaction inciting the crowd reacts. That's how it works. But this audience was reacting, and I hadn't initiated it. And now they were pointing at something. I turned to look where the audience was gesturing and saw an unmistakable figure, dramatically backlit at the rear of the stage, with his Rickenbacker bass guitar. Did he bring it with it? Did he bring it with him just in case? Slung down by his side, Lemmy Kilmeister walked out. To join the fray. For the first time since their breakup, Lemmy and Fast Eddie Clark were brought together. The crowd absolutely lost their minds. Lined up across the front of the stage, guitars pointed at the crowd like the Magnificent Seven were myself, Eddie, Animal, JJ, Pete Way, Fast Eddie, and Lemmy. Holy shit! We tore into the finale of its only rock and roll and completely turned the Reading Festival on its ear. What a complete audience turnaround in 40 short minutes. We exited to the backstage area where cameras were flashing and everyone wanted to know about this crazy makeup-wearing band from New York who had not only won over the vicious Reading crowd, but had just orchestrated the reunion of Fast, Eddie, and Lemmy. Maybe I'm not such an asshole after all. After the press barrage, Mark Mendoza, AJ, and I head over to the side stage to see if there were any takers on my offer to fight. The place was packed with new Twisted Sister fans ready to do battle against any would-be takers with us. There were none. Later, we changed out of our stage clothes and taken, later, after we changed out of our stage clothes and taken off our makeup, the band and the crew were standing around marveling at what had transpired. What a day. The drummer Danny Piss Flaps Heatley and guitar player Big John from The Exploited had done us the enormous favor of being roadies for us that day. Eddie O'Jada joked that we should have put our amps in front of us as a protective wall. The usually quiet Big John piped up in his thick Scottish brogue. I cannot believe someone threw a shite. What? I said, completely confused by what Big John clearly thought was English. Someone threw a shite. A what? A shite, man, a shite. Big John exclaimed again, frustrated by my inability to understand him. A what? Danny Heatley chimed in with his Scottish to East London translation. A shit, man. Somebody threw a shit. Wow. Somebody had thrown human shit at the stage. My mind was blown. So many questions about this needed to be answered. How much do you need to hate a band to throw a human shit? Whose shit was it? The throwers or somebody else's? Where do they get the shit? From a porta potty or did they just have it on standby in case they hated a band enough to throw it? Or were they so angered by us they dropped trow, laid a fresh one, then hurled it? Which brings me right back to my first question. How much do you need to hate a band to throw human shit? It's a conundrum. I pondered that brain teaser on and off during my flight home to the States, but I had other more important things in my mind. It was time for my wife to have our baby. And that's the story of the second time. Lemmy Kilmeister, along with Pete Way and Fast Eddie Clark, provided the game changer for Twisted Sister which took us to the next level. Now, going off book here, and this is covered in the book, of course, what happened after that, um, my son was born on September 19th, 1982, Jesse. Uh, we were supposed to go on tour with Diamond Head with uh, for the Under the Blade record. Uh, we did a farewell tour of uh, the tri-state area where we lived, uh, going off for our first big international tour. And right before we were ready to leave, we got the call that Secret Records had gone bankrupt, out of business, and they could not finance the tour, and the tour was canceled. This was the deathstroke for Twisted Sister. The death stroke. Uh, we couldn't work because we had already done a farewell run of dates. You can't very well go back and do more shows. It was winter. Um, I was married. I had a baby. Uh, I had no money. And in the book, I detail how we survived all that with the help of uh, of our tour manager, Joe Gerber's generosity with a with an inheritance he had and things like that. But – and there's a lot of stories in between there. But we got an opportunity – right before Christmas to go uh, do a show called The Tube which let you do three songs live live, meaning you perform live for an audience but it went out on TV live which is a very unusual thing and we begged, borrowed and stole the money to get over there to do this show because this was really our last chance uh, we really again, if you know, in my book, I, I document that Twisted had been together at this point for six and a half years, actually including J.J.'s years, eight and a half for J.J., because it was a couple of years before uh, me and Eddie joined. So and we really, we couldn't just, we were fighting this incredible uphill battle. And we went and did the tube. And who do we put a call out to? Lemmy, of course who shows up to do the tube with us, him and Robbo, Brian Robertson, came to perform with us on stage, on the show live. Again, that little extra to have Lemmy, who had be, been everywhere for us at the Marquee Clubs, all kinds of shows, but to have him come on the show, it just lent credibility to us. That performance, and it wasn't the Lemmy element, that was, Lemmy was a sweetener in that one, Led to us getting signed to Atlantic Records and ultimately to our breakthrough, but Lemmy again being there for us. Uh, but if years later, I uh, this, the perform, that performance though uh, was so powerful, and and Lemmy and Brian Robertson were very much a part of that. That it, it the video of that show became was voted one of the top videos of the year in the English rock press by the fans. But it wasn't a video. All the other things on there were actual videos. Our video was one of the top ones of the year. It was just people taping it and passing it around. It was that powerful. And years later, when I went back to the tube for, uh, for a visit, I walked in the green room to see a wall. The wall was easily 30 feet long, 15 feet high. And the entire wall was a blown-up photo of the last moments of Twisted Sister, Brian Robertson, and Lemmy Kilmeister performing the final notes, the final chord of It's Only Rock and Roll But I Like It on the show. And I was like, whoa, I was blown away. And they said that was the most incredible moment in the history of the tube. What is the common denominator, the common thread between the Reading show, the Wrexham show, the tube performance? Lemmy Kilmeister. I love you, Lemmy. Thank you. Rest in peace. Stay tuned for the latest AP news headlines from Podcast One, right after this. When shopping for car insurance, consider this. GEICO has been saving people money on car insurance for over 75 years. So if you're serious about savings, it's simple. Go to geico.com. After 75 years, they know how to save you money. AP Update. I'm Sandy Kozell. Polls are opening across New Hampshire for the nation's first presidential primary. And that means it's time for Granite State undecided voters to make a choice, as we hear from the AP's Jerry Boatlander. Voters here in New Hampshire are known for waiting until the last minute before deciding who they're pulling the lever for or changing their minds about who they're supporting. Gloria Fields is choosing between Donald Trump and Jeb Bush. Trump, because of his business ability, Bush because of what he has done in Florida. Field says she may not decide who she's supporting until she's in the voting booth. All this uncertainty makes polling more difficult, and on top of that, independent voters can vote in either the Republican or Democratic primary. Jerry Bowlander, Manchester, New Hampshire. Poll show Clinton trailing Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. She started her day at 7 a.m. at a Manchester polling location. AP Update, I'm Sandy Kozell.